Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is one of 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. They're called minor not because they're unimportant or under the age of 18, but simply because their prophecies are shorter than the heavy hitters like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Having said that, at 12 chapters, Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets. Well, it's 500 years before Christ. The Israelites have returned from decades of judgment, exile in Babylon, and yet home is not the same. Much of the city is still in rubble, and the parts that have been rebuilt are pathetic compared to what they used to be. The glory that had, that had departed has not yet been restored. And so it's into this context of frustration and fear that God deploys a man named Zechariah to his mouthpiece to bring a word in season to the people. You see, before the exile, Israel struggled to believe that God would truly judge. But here, after the exile, Israel is struggling to believe that God will truly restore. Zechariah, he receives a series of visions to communicate to the people, to give them hope, which brings us to chapter 3. Follow along as the prophet recounts what he saw. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. The angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule over my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor and come under his father and under his fig tree. This vision contains three main scenes. We'll look at each in turn. First, the accusation. We see that in verses 1 to 3. Second, the restoration. Verses 4 and 5. And third, the expectation. 
verses 6 to 10. The accusation, the restoration, and the expectation. First, the accusation. Look again at how Zechariah begins. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This is not like a boring movie that takes 60, 75 minutes for the plot to thicken. We are immediately, verse 1, in it, peering into God's very throne room, which has been transformed into a courtroom because there's a trial underway. Joshua the high priest, and by the way, this is not Joshua, Moses' successor. We're about 800 years later in biblical history. This is Joshua the high priest after the exile in Babylon. He's standing before God, but he's not alone. Satan is right there to accuse him. Perhaps this scene reminds some of you of Job 1 where Satan slithers in to God's courtroom. When, when the angels are presenting themselves before the Lord, Satan slithers in as well to negotiate with God and to attack Job. But why here in Zechariah 3 is all of this happening? I mean, what's significant about this moment that makes the devil want to interrupt it. The devil doesn't interrupt a lot of scenes in your Bible the way he's interrupting this one. So what is so significant about what's going on? Well, here's what's so significant. He is catching God in the act of making good on his promises. Restoring the exiles back to the land, back to Jerusalem, to rebuilding the temple and restoring the high priest's position of representing the people before God. For seven long decades in Babylon, it looked like, it felt like none of this would happen, that God had relinquished his promises and finally abandoned his people. But through the prophet, God is looking and his rebellious children in the eye and saying, I'm not done with you. I've restored you to the land physically, but I'm also not giving up on you relationally. If you'll just humble yourselves and stay loyal to me, then your future is not bleak, but bright. And Satan hates this changing set of things. And so he comes to register an objection. He's standing beside Joshua as prosecutor. That's what his name, Satan in Hebrew, literally means, prosecutor. And what's the nature of his case? Well, it's really not complicated. Joshua is clothed with filthy garments, which means he is a fitting stand-in for the people. This Hebrew word for filthy is not a tame word. This is not a PG word. It shows up only three other times in your Old Testament to refer to menstrual blood, human excrement, and vomit. Things like, some high priest you are, Joshua, you are a joke. You have the audacity to come in here looking like this? Wearing filthy rags, and God, if you're really 
holy like you say you are, then you know you have to expel him from this sparkling room. See, we read this and think, okay, this makes sense. Joshua, the high priest, God, it makes sense. These two characters are in this scene, the high priest and God. Satan, he's the unwelcome intruder. But notice, Satan is not bashful, hiding in the shadows, just lurching out to lob an objection. No, he's standing there, firm-footed, chest out. He's confident. His whole case is, Joshua, you're the unwelcome one here. Not me. You're the one who clearly doesn't fit. Don't you see yourself? You're the high priest. How does Joshua reply? He doesn't. He doesn't even have a chance. Someone else takes charge of the conversation. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked in the fire? Stand down, Satan, and shut up. You may not speak about my servant that way. I chose Jerusalem, and you're acting like I made a mistake. I snatched him out of the fire of Babylon because my people are precious to me, and you think you can show up uninvited in my throne room and tell me who's unwelcome? Here in verse 2, notice God's electing love. Just in verse 2, his electing love and his rescuing grace. He chose Jerusalem. He chose the Israelites, not the reverse. He set his affection on them, not because they were so good, but because he was so good. That's a love that's secure because you can't, listen friends, listen to me, you can't lose what you never earned. It's been said that the best proof, follow me here, this blew my mind when I, when I first thought about this, that the best proof that God will never stop loving you lies in the fact that he really never began. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. His love wasn't born, and therefore, it will never die. It was beginningless, and because of that, you can be assured that it will be endless. And those on whom he sets his eternal, electing love become the recipients of his rescuing grace. In 1709, a house in England caught fire. And all the children, thankfully, were accounted for outside. They managed to escape. At least that's what everyone thought until suddenly they realized that the six-year-old, the youngest, John, wasn't present. And amid all the chaos and the fear and the confusion, a nearby farmer spotted little John up in a window. And so 
some of the, the, the neighbors came, some of the, the, the men who lived nearby, and they, they sat on each other's shoulders in order to create a kind of human ladder of sorts, and they were able to hoist one another up and bring little John down to safety amid the dancing flames. And later in life, after his conversion, John Wesley described his life with the words of Zechariah 3.2, a burning stick plucked from the fire. And if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, that is exactly what you are too. Chosen and snatched. Snatched from the eternal fire of God's justice that you deserve because of your sin, but that he has pulled you out of in love. Now don't lose sight of this scene. In Zechariah, okay, electing love, rescuing grace. These aren't just floating doctrines and meaning for a preacher that kind of are arising out of nowhere. No, these doctrines of electing love and rescuing grace are not random. They are responses to satanic attack. God, this is what's going on. God is doing what he does best. He's showing what he does best. He's, he's highlighting what he does best precisely because Satan is busy doing what he does best, accusing. Not just 2,500 years ago, but Joshua. Satan excels at accusing in Rockwell, Maryland today, this afternoon, in your heart, in your conscience. Brothers and sisters, here's the thing about Satan's accusations. It's counterintuitive, but when it sinks in, it's actually liberating. Here's the thing you got to understand about Satan's accusations against you. They are rarely inaccurate. Satan is not technically wrong in his accusations against you. Remember, he walks into the courtroom prepared. He comes into your conscience prepared. And his case is strong. You are filthy. You are guilty before a righteous God. You are a moral failure, a hypocrite, an imposter. A choker. You are defiled head to toe, from the inside out, in the idea of you, you, standing before God, not just standing there, but having the audacity to worship him in his throne room? To say that that's not just hilarious, that is downright obscene. Satan looks at you, and then he looks at God and he says, God, you haven't just lowered your standards. You can violate See, I used to think of the nature of Christ's advocacy for me, his intercession at the 
right hand of the Father basically consisted of him once again convincing God to give me another chance. Yes, I, I know that blew it. But one more day. He deserves damnation, yes, but, but just give him one more day. And so, as a result, my sense of security was really only as strong is my feeling that that arrangement could hold. Because at what point is the father just going to hear the same thing and say, enough! I've heard enough about this fellow Matt. No more days. But the foundation of my security and the foundation during Christ of your security is not that it's not even a matter of merely of mercy. Did you know that? Did you know that your security, your standing before the Father in heaven, before the throne of God above, is not merely a matter of mercy? What, what do I mean? Well, your salvation is not hanging on the thread of God being lenient. It's not hanging on this sort of even spider thread of God merely being merciful. Your salvation is hanging, as it were, on the cross. His name is Jesus. He paid it all, as we just sang. And therefore, you can have confidence that when you confess your sin, he, as the Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 9, will be faithful and merciful. No, faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, which implies that for him to not forgive you as a repenting sinner hidden in his son would be unjust and wrong of him. That is how secure you are. Yes, Satan brings true accusations against you, but Christian, you need to know that when God plucked you from the fire, he did so with a clear view of all of your filthiness, past and future. He knew you had sinned against him and that you would continue to sin against him, and yet he wanted you anyway. And that has never changed. Satan has the gift, though, of discouragement. He will whisper accusation in your ears and your conscience all day long. If he has to, he'll do whatever he must do to keep you feeling down about your sin. But the Lord did not give you a new heart where you perpetually torn up in pieces with discouragement. So instead of listening to the accuser, set your eyes on the electing love of God from before the foundation of the world. And if you want to see the place where that love radiates and shines brightest, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Spend some time this week pressing into your heart familiar words like when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, which he will. The, the writer of this hymn did the right thing by not saying if Satan tempts me to 
and despair. No, it's a, it's a matter of when. He will this afternoon. He will tomorrow. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul can become free. Why? For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. But God doesn't just stop with silencing the accusations. He also reclothes the accused. Number two, the restoration. The restoration. Look at verses four and five. Or look at verse four. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua, he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This scene is so exciting that even Zechariah chimes in. That's him talking in verse 5. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. In other words, hey, don't stop with the priestly robes. Let's give him the priestly mantle. Let's make sure he's fully decked out from his feet to his head. So they put a clean turban on Joshua's head and clothed him with garments. Again, Joshua's repulsive garments are a physical picture of the people's spiritual condition. But notice, this is so important, how God responds to Joshua's defilement. Don't miss this. How does God respond here to Joshua's defilement? the exact same way he responded to Satan's accusations in verse 2. Remember there, Satan, God didn't respond to Satan to Satan's accusations by downplaying Joshua's sin. That's not how he responds to Satan's accusations against you either. It's not that he downplays the sin, but he points to his own grace. Remember, I selected and snatched these people out of the fire. How dare you accuse them? Likewise, here in verse 4, it's not, ah, I can see why there's been a misunderstanding. His, it does look really bad. Uh, uh, but his, it's, not, it's not as bad as it looks. His clothes are filthy, but, but there's, it's not as bad as it looks. No, for, not for a second does God deny or minimize the filth. He simply removes it and replaces that disgusting laundry with radiant robes. And the most important word I just said was he. He, God, does this. He is the actor. It's not, look, Joshua, I know you're in a bind, but I'm going to give you a chance to get a better outcome. No, it's, I have taken your iniquity away. I will clothe you with pure vestments. All you need to do, friends, all you need to do is stand there and let him clothe you. Of course, in the immediate context of Zechariah, the new clothes symbolize the priesthood regaining that lost dignity. That's not all. This too... Zechariah 3 is an enacted parable of our own salvation. 
Specifically, our justification, our change of status before God, whereby we who believe are pronounced righteous in the right before him. It's even a picture of another big word, imputation. God imputing or crediting or transferring our sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. See, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived your filthy life so that he could treat you, believer, as if you had lived his faultless life.
Here's how one Puritan summarized this dramatic scene. Quote, Christ loathed, Christ hated the filthiness of Joshua's garments, yet did not put him away, but them away. Thus God, by his grace, does with those whom he chooses. He parks them and their sins, and so prevents their sins parting them and their well, the accuser has been silenced. Joshua has been reclothed. But God is not done. Number three, the expectation. Look at verse six. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Did you notice that this statement is not unconditional? It's very conditional. If, if, Joshua, you walk in my ways, then you will rule over my house. But I've been preaching a lot of grace so far. What is this? Is this legalism making a little cameo appearance into our otherwise grace-filled passage? No. I mean, first of all, look carefully at the way the statement is framed in verse 6. It's not, the beginning of verse 6, and the angel of the Lord scolded Joshua. It's not even, and the angel of the Lord warned Joshua. What does it say? And the angel of the Lord assured Joshua. On the other side of accusation, this is a scene. Of assurance. But friends, how can this be a scene of assurance and yet there be a conditional statement? Listen, assurance is rooted in grace alone, but it is related to your obedience. This is not a contradiction. I'm not speaking out of both sides of my mouth because obeying God is not opposed to his grace. It is the fruit of his grace. And don't miss the order of events here. Joshua is reclothed and cleansed in verses 4 to 5 before he is commanded in verses 6 and 7. It's not he gets the command and then based on how well he fulfills the command, then he's reclothed and cleansed. No, reclothed and cleansed, then commanded. This is the good news of Christianity, which, friend, is unique to Christianity. You don't have to perform for God in order to be accepted and cleansed by God. He accepts you and cleanses you because of someone else's performance. No other religion, philosophy, or worldview talks like this, but the Bible does. He accepts you and clothes you because of the performance of Christ, and then you are liberated to walk in his ways because you want nothing more than to bring pleasure to the one who liberated you. Here's another thing. What office does Joshua hold in Israel? Priest. We've already established that, right? He's the high priest. But in verse 7, what does God promise him if he obeys? That he will rule 
For, jo for Joshua and the original viewers, this would have been a record scratch. Because in the Old Testament, priests served, but only kings ruled. And yet here, we have both a priest being described as a king. Camera lens takes on even clearer focus in chapter 6. Go ahead and go ahead and turn this. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 11. Take from them, that is the returning exiles, silver and gold, and make a what? Crown. And set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. A crown for a priest. Friends, in Zechariah 3 and 6, we are seeing one of the few flickers in the Old Testament of what will light up the pages of the New The reunion between the priesthood and the kingship in one man. But this priest king is not the only flicker of the future. Look back in chapter 3 at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. My servant the branch. My servant the branch. Both terms are official titles in your Old Testament. Official titles that are freighted with meaning. In Isaiah, another one of the prophets, my servant had become God's title for the Messiah who would suffer and die in the place of his people. And the branch is God's title for the Messiah who will shoot up from the line of David and inherit the throne forever. Remember verse 2? We are what? Joshua was what? We are what? A little burning twig. Stick. Jesus is a branch sprouting with life from the ground. The historical events of Joshua's day are, it says in verse 8, a sign, quote, sign for a greater day of fulfillment. God is recertifying his promises and saying, I'm still planning to bring a greater priest, a true and better Joshua who will suffer as a servant and then rise to rule the world. And what is the Lord's promise? What is this promise he's recertifying, this promise that is etched in stone? The end of verse 9. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. The coming of the servant, the coming of this branch, will coincide with the ejection of sin. Five hundred years later, that day that Zechariah three nine is talking about finally came, when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, the earth shook, the sun was blotted out, the graves were opened, and the covering of sin was removed. 
from those who bore his guilt. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. This is why Christ's dying words on Good Friday were not. It is almost finished. As if you are left to complete the task. No. As we hear in other places in the Bible, especially a book like Hebrews, the death of the Son of God was a final, definitive, climactic, once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Jesus drained the cup of God's wrath so that there wouldn't be a drop left for you if you're hidden in him by faith. In this sudden removal of sin, this sudden removal of sin has spillover effects for the whole world. Verse 10, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Those of you who have seen the play Hamilton may recognize the phrase. George Washington sings it in the play. George Washington historically loved to use this phrase of Americans sitting under their own vine and fig tree as a way of describing the peace of independence and freedom from military oppression. But of course, this phrase is not original to Washington. It's not unique to America. It's an image that shows up in the Old Testament in places like Micah and 2 Kings and elsewhere to describe the security and blessedness of life under a people's reign. But it's not just a feel-good phrase fit for a sermon or a modern-day musical. There is an action involved. Did you notice that? Look, look, again, look again. Verse 10. Every one of you will do something. Invite. Every one of you will invite his neighbor into this kingdom life. No, we are not ancient Israel rebuilding a temple in Jerusalem, but we are the church the temple of Christ called to invite others into the peace of forgiven sin and the security of the king's reign. Christian, who are you inviting? Who are you inviting to get in on this? I had an extended family member recently die suddenly at the age of 51. You'd never know when that coworker, that neighbor, friend, that family member, will breathe their lives. And this should worry you. This should excite you because it is not your job to save. It is just your job to Believe it though, Zachariah 3 is still five centuries away from Christ's arrival in Bethlehem. This is a sparkling diamond of gospel grace. We can marvel at it from so many angles, can't we? Have I not chosen Jerusalem? That's God's lofty love. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? That's his rescuing grace. Remove his filthy garments. I'll clothe you in pure ones. That's God covering us in the radiant righteousness of his son. 
We have a priest king. We have a suffering servant, a branch. We get to overhear the words, I will remove sin in a single day, which is exactly what would occur on Good Friday. It's not a long chapter. And yet it can feel so overwhelming to ponder and trust me to preach because it is so just sprawling. But in fact, in fact, there is a laser-like practical purpose. All of these angles on the diamond, listening to all of these angles on the diamond, converge in service to the believer who hears and cannot shake the whispers back to him. Above all, what Zechariah 3 is pressing on us is that this electing, rescuing, righteousness granting, sin removing king is your personal defense And guess what? He's undefeated in court. And his case for you is infallible. That's why the Apostle John can write two verses after the one I quoted earlier. You can we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. Two verses later, little children, I'm writing so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, that describe any of you? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's why Paul can reflect on your opponents, the prosecution team in your life, human and demonic, and say, Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Believer, this means, you don't often get this application in church, but this means, among other things, that you are free to smile and to laugh and to invite others to come rest in the advocate too. In conclusion, I mentioned John Wesley earlier. When he was converted, there was another John in England who was decidedly not converted. He was busy trafficking human bodies in transatlantic slavery. But God snatched John Newton out of the fire, too. And you can imagine that, given that wicked past, I don't think there are any slave traders in this room, but some of you have pasts that haunt you. Given John Newton's wicked past, you can imagine he often heard the whispers of accusation. And so he would fight the devil by putting pen to paper and writing prayers like this. Perhaps we can relate. Bow down beneath the load of sin by Satan's sword request, by war without and fears within. I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield in a hiding place that sheltered by thy side I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, Thou hast done. Mm -hmm.
or as another old witness put it, even more simply, well may the accuser revolt of sins that I committed. That's what faces you this week, brother. Well may the accuser revolt of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Christian, whether last night or 40 years ago, the sins you can't forget, God does not remember. That is how to think of it. Recover it. And see.